This is the Down East EM Podcast. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Down East EM Podcast. We are going to be talking about Paramedic 2 today. So I am here, Jason Hine, and I'm joined again by Sam Potter. Sam, say hello to the crowd. Hi everybody, thanks again for having me on. Absolutely. So Paramedic 2, which is technically titled... A Randomized Trial of Epinephrine in Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, August 2018. So background, we're going to be talking about epinephrine, adrenaline in some other countries, epinephrine in the United States. It's kind of standard care, right, to use epinephrine in cardiac arrest. We all know that. When someone loses their pulse, that's one of the things we reach for. It's one of the pillars of ACLS. Now, it's thought that it reduces mortality by increasing ROSC, or return of spontaneous circulation. And certainly, you need to have ROSC to have survival. But do the two pair well together? Do they actually correlate to one another? The AHA gives a Class 2B level recommendation for the following. Quote, standard dose epinephrine, 1 milligram every 3 to 5 minutes, may be reasonable for patients in cardiac arrest. End quote. So what is a 2B recommendation? That's actually weak. It's the idea that benefits may be greater than or equal to risk with phrasings like, may or might be reasonable, may or might be considered. So for a pillar of what we do, not great evidence to support that. And AHA kind of goes into the four pillars uh, that improve outcomes in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They list the following. One is easy access to emergency services, two, early CPR, three, early defibrillation, and four, early advanced care or ACLS. We've talked about this in the past, and something that I would agree, I agree with point two and three, basically, right? Early CPR and early defibrillation improves outcomes in patients with cardiac arrest. That fourth point in particular, early ACLS, it's kind of not that well supported in the literature, surprisingly. So that was the when I started reading this paper and doing our little review here for the podcast, that was something I found particularly striking, this 2B level of evidence. You think epinephrine, like you said, it is such a pillar of our care, you think it would be uh, more supported in the research. Um, and I think that it's something that makes a lot of physiologic sense, the use of epinephrine in cardiac arrest, because, and this is something that they talk about in the paper, um, in theory, we're getting this alpha-1 stimulation, you're causing this vasoconstriction, you're getting higher diastolic pressures, which leads to higher coronary perfusion, because obviously the coronaries are getting filled during diastole, and so you're getting more oxygen delivered to the myocardium, you're having a much higher likelihood of that heart starting beating again on its own. But this comes at the cost of the vasoconstriction of microcirculation within the brain as well. And so, at least in theory, it would make sense that this is a bit of a balancing act or a seesaw here. You're, you're increasing perfusion to the heart, but you're decreasing perfusion to the brain. And so there, there really is a question here. So prior to this study, there, there was a review article that looked at about 10 observational studies and two clinical trials. In total, um, about 600,000 patients that did show that there was increased rates of ROSC in patients who received epinephrine. Uh, as well as an increased survival to discharge, but they hadn't shown any difference in intact neurological outcomes. So very little focus on patient-centered outcomes before this. Most of the research into epinephrine and ACLS really is mortality and ROSC. Um, It was really one trial looking at survival out to one year with intact neurological outcomes, and this showed that this was worse in patients who had received epinephrine. But just to reiterate, not a lot of great data going into this paper. It was, it, was a, it was a really big space to be filled by this paper, a lot of questions to be answered um, regarding the use of epinephrine and cardiac arrest. Lots of uh, suggestions that this would increase rates of ROSC, but possibly worse neurological outcomes. Yeah, and that's a, a perfect 
clinical question for me, right? The physiology makes sense for me. The idea behind it uh, is something that I can jive with, and it's a great question because it's so practical to what we do. But really what we're asking here is, does epinephrine bring back a heart to a dead brain? And that's obviously not something that we want to have. We do need survival. It makes sense for everyone in the past to be focusing on ROS, focusing on survival. But if you have survival with profound neurological deficit, are we doing any favors to the patient and to the healthcare system as a whole? So enter the Paramedic 2 trial, right? That's what we're here to talk about. They had the clinical question of determining whether epinephrine is beneficial or harmful as a treatment for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. In terms of study design, it hits all those keywords that you want to hear. It's a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial. And the population that they studied is a UK-based study, and it was all patients cared for by this, these five EMS systems. So all out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients that were cared for in a demographic way by these five trained EMS services. So for inclusion criteria, they looked at adult patients who had sustained an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest for which advanced life support was provided by these trial-trained paramedics. So for exclusion criteria, they excluded anyone who was known or apparently pregnant, uh, those who were less than 16 years of age. So the definition of an adult in this trial was 16 years of age or older. Uh, They also excluded those who had a cardiac arrest, um, which was suspected to be due to anaphylaxis or asthma. We don't want to be withholding epinephrine in those patients. And lastly, they excluded patients who had received epinephrine from paramedics who were not trained in enrolling patients into this particular study. For interventions, they used one milligram of epinephrine every three to five minutes. And this was compared to an injection of 0.9% normal saline every three to five minutes. I wonder if that led to any, the known or apparently pregnant, I wonder if that led to any confusing or awkward moments where the paramedics just weren't sure. You're never supposed to ask a woman if she's pregnant, obviously. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's just not clear. So I would love to see the patients that were excluded for being apparently pregnant. That seems like a, a difficult thing for them to navigate. Good, good for them for considering it. All right, so then primary outcomes. The number one outcome that they looked at was rate of survival at 30 days. They were looking at pure survival, not assessing neurological outcome, primary outcome there. They had a lot of secondary outcomes, and we'll get into these in a great bit of detail. But the collective secondary outcomes included rate of survival until hospital admission, the lengths of stay at the hospital and ICU, the rates of survival at hospital discharge and at three months, and very importantly, the neurological outcomes at hospital discharge and at three months. Which leads us to the results section. So the primary outcome that they were looking at was survival at 30 days. And so this was 3.2% in the epinephrine group compared to 2.4% in the placebo group. So there was a statistically significant difference in 30-day survival rate among those who received epinephrine. For secondary outcomes... Uh, they did look at severe neurological impairment, which was 31% in the epinephrine group compared to about 18% in the placebo group. The other secondary outcome that they considered that we'll discuss here is survival to discharge with a favorable neurological outcome, and there was no difference there between groups. Yeah, and so we'll, we have a table listing all of the uh, secondary outcomes. We're not going to go into all of them in detail, uh, but there's a table there in the show notes for you. So the author's conclusions here were the following. In adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the use of epinephrine resulted in a significantly higher rate of 30-day survival than the use of placebo. But there was no significant between-group difference in the rate of favorable neurological outcome because more survivors had severe neurological impairment in the epinephrine group. 
Sam, what do you think about this? So I think it's a great paper. Um, I think it it is obviously the biggest um, randomized trial um, available so far on this uh, on this question. And so uh, that is a big question: is whether or not we should be using epi in cardiac arrest. Um, one thing I will say is that they their primary outcome is survival and not neurological outcome. And I think that we'll talk about it in a little bit. But the biggest question we're going to have is is what we alluded to in the introduction there, and that relates much more towards you know, neurological outcome and what people would want in terms of neurological outcome. But the, the way that the research study was designed was to look at the primary outcome of survival, not neurological outcome. One of the questions that I had when I was reading the paper was the related to the survival rates, and I think a lot of people have been talking about this online too, which was that the survival rate of 3.2% in the epinephrine group and 2.4% in the placebo group, those are a lot lower than the um, survival rates that we would expect from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And so I was surprised to see that, but after doing a little bit more digging, it did, um, it did make sense to me that when you, when you look at the paper, they say that they excluded patients who had um, ROSC before the epinephrine was given. And so they mentioned that um, in the supplementary appendix, about 615 patients were excluded because of return of spontaneous circulation before the trial paramedics got there. And so when you do the math for those numbers, it does work out to about a 8 to 10% survival rate. And so for me, that, that answered an important question about why the survival uh, rate was so low in this study. Yeah, that is an important thing to point out too, right? Because, you know, 3.2%, that is kind of a shockingly low survival rate. But when you do look at the patients that kind of the ideal cardiac arrest patient, right? The guy that goes into VFib, gets defibrillated once and comes back before anyone can administer either the placebo or the epinephrine. Those patients were excluded, and that that really drives their number down. Uh, But one of the other critiques that I kind of just wanted to mention here was that randomization uh, did not continue into the emergency department or into the hospital. Uh, It was basically just sort of pre-hospital care. Once patients arrived in the ED, they received standard care which really would mean epinephrine, regardless of what trial arm they were in. I think it would have been interesting to see that sort of randomization carry through, at least, you know, until admission. And I don't necessarily know that it would change, you know, our outcome or the way that we critique or review this paper, but it's just something that's interesting. So let's kind of get into the meat of our analysis here. Let's talk about what they defined as neurologically intact survival, what we think that might be, et cetera. So the, they use the modified Rankin scale, which is you know, well-known and probably the standard in terms of assessing someone's neurological deficit after an event. And it's a scale from zero with no symptoms to six, which is death. And they use the cut point of three, three or less, as neurologically intact. And it's important to know what that means. So a three is moderate disability. It requires some help, but able to walk without assistance. And comparing that to kind of the neurologically impaired, which is four, five, and six, you know, a four is moderately severe disability, unable to walk without assistance, and unable to attend to one's own bodily needs without assistance. So for me, that makes sense. I would say that kind of the ability to ambulate and, and do your ADLs independently is a kind of a line in the sand in terms of being neurologically intact. And I think they were right on in terms of, you know, that representing someone that has a good neural outcome versus someone that does not. But it's individual. What, Sam, what do you think about this? 
Yeah, I, th- I think that this is the biggest question that, that remains um, to be answered here. And I think it's something that we're going to really have to have more of a, a discussion on kind of a public and a social level to decide what level of disability after a cardiac arrest is acceptable. And I think that that's going to be extremely challenging to do. It's such a personal um, decision. You know, I think that we've all had that discussion, that code status discussion in the hospital where we're asking patients um, about their code status and they all say, well, not if I was going to be a vegetable. And so it's hard to say, you know, what, what number um, are you defining as, as a vegetable here? And I think for, for us, for kind of younger, healthier people, we're going to say, I would not be happy with a, you know, a four and probably not even happy with a three. But for some people, um, they may be, you know, willing to, to live their life. They may be able to find joy and satisfaction out of, um, you know, a more severe neurological impairment. And so I think that um, as the providers, it's going to be very difficult for us to, to kind of say where we're comfortable with this. And it's going to be something that we're going to have to discuss with people um, and, and kind of have a discussion on a, on a much broader scale before we start, you know, coming up with certain cutoffs or certain decisions about what, what is uh, neurologically desirable. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a fantastic, almost ethical question that we're going to have to get into. And it's probably going to vary sort of, you know, state by state, region by region, country by country, and maybe even within the individual. But we have to kind of think of it more globally. We have to decide as a healthcare system what is beneficial to the patient. But then also on the other side of the coin, we have to discuss healthcare cost here too, right? If you look at our table and sort of see, you know, what we're doing with or to patients, you see our survival to hospital admission was almost 24% in the epi group and 8% in the placebo. But the very next line, survival to discharge, those numbers are very comparable, 3%, 3.2 and 2.3. So that means that we're bringing in a lot of patients in the epinephrine group who are dying in the ICU, essentially, right? And we have to think about the cost to the system, the resource utilization, and then also the psychological burden to family and friends who see their loved one in that, in that state and then probably have to make a decision about withdrawal of care at some point. And I, I think that raises a big, a big uh, question for us as, as emergency providers. If we decide that, um, you know, we're, we're not going to be using epinephrine as much, we are going to see our rates of ROSC in the emergency department plummet because we're getting these people back at, you know, much higher rates only for them to die in the intensive care unit. I think it's going to be a, a personal problem for us if we, if we start seeing our uh, rates of ROSC dip down into the 8% problem. We're going to have some degree of uncertainty about what we're doing wrong. I think it's something to be considered. Yeah, I mean, it may be a lot more death packets for us in the emergency department, unfortunately. Um, and then it kind of, you know, sort of next, we're going to go into next questions and then end with, the, you know, does this change our clinical practice and our conclusions? For me, one of the next questions was, if bolus epinephrine may be out, and there is a signal here that it's not improving our neurologically intact survival and only improving you know, emissions to the ICU for, for eventual uh, death or, or declaration there, if bolus is out, is there a better form of epi? Is infusion the right way to go? Is that more physiologic? Or does it need to be sort of wholesale taken out of the algorithm? So, Sam, in summation, you know, does the paramedic 2, is it going to change your practice yeah, I, th- I think that for the, the patients that we're receiving that have had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, I at this stage in the game, I'm probably still going to continue using the uh, milligram bolus dosing of epinephrine every three to five minutes. I think that um, 
it will, this study has certainly informed me in ways that will allow me to have uh, better discussions with patients and patients' families um, about, um, you know, rates of neurological um, recovery. But I think that as far as um, completely changing ACLS and changing our guidelines right now, I, I don't think we're there. I do think that this um, will be included. You know, I think that the AHA and other guidelines that that make uh, resuscitation guidelines are going to have to have a look at this paper. But I, for me, I don't think we're there just yet. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, throwing out the epi myself here either. I think it does kind of lead to a, a interesting clinical question and one that sort of has been in the back of my mind as well. I think the idea of bolus dose epi might be sort of disproven or certainly have some evidence against it with this article. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering now, you know, is continuous uh, drip or is lower doses with more, higher frequency the right way to go? And that's kind of the next question. But I agree with you. This is something that we uh, want to know. This is a very important clinical question that's being answered here for us. But I'd, I don't think we're ready to take epinephrine off of our algorithm. Okay. So, Sam, what would you say is our formal conclusion to, of this study for the listeners? So I think we can say our conclusion is the following. Epinephrine increases ROSC significantly, but it only slightly influences the survival to hospital discharge or 30-day mortality. And the increase in ROSC that we see means more severe neurological impairment among those survivors. It has no effect in neurologically intact survival overall. Perfect. Very interesting article, something that we all need to know about, need to have reviewed, and need to consider in our practice. So guys, thanks for listening.